We didn't mention last week that we were going to talk about this particular subject because uh, whenever we do, some people are conspicuous by their absence. I know what that's like. When I was a kid growing up, our minister used to occasionally announce that he was going to give a series of messages on youth, and uh, that's when we left because we knew that... uh, that he was going to uh, say some things to us we didn't want to hear. Well, if that's the way you're feeling this morning, I, I do hope you'll you'll stay, and I hope you'll come back because we're not going to pound on you. What I hope we can do is encourage you uh, in your marriages. I, I have seen more families unravel this year than in, in my entire uh, experience. And many of them are my friends, my own personal friends, and most of them are Christians. Uh, it, it seems that, uh, that what Jesus called our unbelieving generation, culture, society around us, the thinking of that particular group has, uh, group has crept into, into our thinking as Christians so that, that new phases change are these are the things that are becoming valuable rather than rather than commitment i just read this past week a statement by a, a christian writer who recently jettisoned his own wife for another a newer younger one he wrote that his divorce was sad but it was a healthy new beginning for each of us in his own way He said he was like Abraham, called to leave the security of marriage to embark on a spiritual pilgrimage towards emotional authenticity. That sounds great, but it's very ungodly. And what we want to do over the weeks ahead is uh, learn to think God's thoughts after him. If we're really going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to call ourselves God's people, we have to learn to think the way God thinks. That's what it means to think God's thoughts after Him. And therefore, the thing to do is to look at the Word, because this is God's Word. We have to remember that. We're really not, uh, it's not, this is not optional for us. We've talked a lot about grace in the last few weeks, and I believe in it strongly. Grace undergirds everything that that we believe, but uh, holiness is also uh, part of the gospel. God calls us to a life of holiness, even when it hurts. And uh, we need to look at what it means to be holy in our homes. Now, would you turn with me to Genesis 1? We want to go all the way back to the beginning. And you can't go much further back than Genesis 1. Now, what, what I want to do this morning is, is chart a course. Genesis is the seed plot for everything else that the Bible has to say about, about marriage. So I'm going to open up a lot of areas of thought that, that will not close down this morning. We won't come to, to, to many conclusions, perhaps, but we'll open up a lot, of, uh, a lot of areas of thinking, a lot of issues that we're going to think about and talk about over the next few weeks. The, uh, the Jews called uh, the book of Genesis Bereshit from the first word, uh, first two words or three words of the text, actually one word in Hebrew, in the beginning. And uh, the book is well named. Actually, that's uh, what Genesis means. Genesis is just the, uh, 
the Greek form, the word taken from the Greek form of the Hebrew word for the book. It's a book about origins or beginnings. Everything else in the Bible, I think, is simply an amplification of the truth that's spelled out in these opening chapters. That's why we want to begin with chapter 1. Now, Genesis 1 is all about the greatness of man. And as you know, the structure of the chapter is, is climactic. There are six days of creation culminating in the formation of man. Chapter 1 wants us to know that man is something special. He's unique. He's, he's not like anything else in creation. He's the apex of God's creation. God waited till the very last to, to make man. Uh, he saved the best for last. That's, that's the point of, of Genesis 1. And the, the centerpiece of the whole chapter is verses 26 through 28. Let's read it. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's the point of chapter 1. That's the centerpiece of chapter 1. Two prose verses and one poem. And the poem is embedded in the center of the centerpiece so that the structure of the, of, of the chapter calls our attention to this bit of poetry. First piece of poetry in, in the Bible, verse 27. Now what we learn from, from verse 26 is that we are made in the image of God, in His likeness. Now some theologians differentiate between likeness and image uh, I personally don't. I, I think what, what Moses means is that God made us in his image, i.e. somewhat like him. That's the point. We're somewhat like God. Now, the Bible does not spell out for us what that image is. It's obvious that we're not made physically in the image of God because God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. So, but we have to speculate from that point on. It may be the fact that we're creative, as God is. We procreate with Him. We create life. It may be that we can communicate. Unlike the animals who just signal, we can use words. We use language. We can talk to one another. It may mean that we are morally responsible. Uh, we can choose. Uh, Cows don't uh, stand around and talk about ethics and what's right and what's wrong and what's good and true and beautiful, far side notwithstanding. Uh, we do. We do. We, we, we want to know what's right, and we know when we're wrong. Uh, it may be that we have authority to rule. But whatever it is, it, it's something that is unique to man. Man is unlike any of, of the rest of creation. Uh, taxonomists will say we have much the same structure, bone structure, muscle structure as animals, but, but we're different. There's something different about us. We're not, as, as, as Moses puts it, not created after other kinds. We're created after the image of God. Animals come up from the earth. Man comes down from heaven. And he has continuity with the earth because he's made out of dust, but there's something different. Something unique about him. 
that makes him human. A friend was telling me the other day about a, a, a salesman who was extolling the virtues of some PC he was selling. and He put on this glove and you can point to the screen and you can configure things by touch. And he, he, he was exalting over this, uh, this uh, technological wonder and he says, it's almost human. And which raises the question, what does it mean to be human? See, if a computer is almost human, then what is it to be a human? Well, we don't know, except the Bible tells us that we're created in the image of God. We're made by God and for God, and we can relate to God in some special way that the animals cannot. And that's what makes us human. That's what makes us special. Now, I have to say uh, that I'm a humanist. Now, uh, before you leave the church, let me explain what I mean. Uh, humanism has come to be a, a bad word, particularly when we talk about secular humanism. But uh, Moses was a humanist. He believed in man. Man has majesty. Man is not junk. He's not trash. He, he is very, very significant. He has worth and value in God's eyes. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 8 was a humanist. He says, what is man that you even notice him? This is the question he asks of God. It's a good question. What is man that you care about him? And he answers the question. You made him a little less than God. In other words, man is the most nearly godlike being on the face of the earth. There's nothing like man. He's special. He has value and worth. Now, that's established in the prose section. Man is made in the image of God, somewhat like God, and he is given rule over the fish of the sea. And in verse 28, we're told that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and increase and fill the earth and rule. And the centerpiece of the centerpiece is the little poem. Wonderful little poem in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I want to make some observations about this, this poem because it's, it's very important to understand what Moses is saying here. He uses the verb create three times in each line. God created man in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. How many times does God have to say something to, to, to say that it's important? Now, th this is the word that I'm sure you've heard from time to time, the word bara which is normally explained to mean creation out of nothing. Actually, the word doesn't mean that. I believe in creation out of nothing. Please don't misunderstand me. God made something out of nothing. But the word itself basically means to shape or to form, and it is used exclusively of God. The point is, man is a divine creation. He was shaped and formed by God. We were made by him and for him. The other thing I want you to notice is the parallelism in this, in this verse. Uh, the, the, the Jews didn't rhyme uh, sounds as we do. We use assonance. We like that. Uh, Mary had a little lamb. Her father shot it dead. Now Mary takes the lamb to school between two hunks of bread. We like that because it, it, it rhymes. It's poetry. That's poetry to us. 
But uh, the, the Jews didn't rhyme sounds, they rhymed ideas. They repeated, you know, made a thesis and then amplification of the thesis and then intensification of the thesis. They, they, they're tracing paths through our brain, setting, reinforcing those neural paths so that we get the point. And that's what he's doing. And usually the last line is the most significant line of all. Now look at the poem in that way. God created man in his own image. The emphasis there is on God. God created. That emphasis is made both by the threefold repetition of the verb and by the significance of the verb, the meaning of the verb. In the image of God, he created him. That's the second emphasis. God created man. Now, I want you to understand that it's in man's image, that in God's image that man is created. And then the third line drives home the point that, that Moses wants to make. Male and female, he created him. Ah, I see what you mean. You're not talking about man in terms of male, but you're talking about generic man. Man as male and female. In other words, we have to look at man in terms of the polarity of sexes and say that both man and woman are made in the image of God and they are equal. That's the point. The whole chapter, chapter 1, culminates in this one idea. Man is something special. And so is woman. Boy, I wish I could get that, up, that across. To men I know. Whoever put the marquee up down in Nampa, I don't know if you've seen it as you go driving, I don't even know the street, but you, you, there's a marquee on a, on a store down there that just gr- makes me grind my teeth every time I see it. It says, a man can master any tongue except his wife's. What a put down. Or Jim Gatlin's, uh, you know, Jim Gatlin is the fellow that wanted to trade uh, his wife who had a personality, had, had an attitude problem for Super Bowl tickets this weekend. Now, any of you see that in the Statesman? Uh, Archie Bunker says, uh, men are worth more than women. Everybody knows that. And we laugh at that, but it is really not funny. It is not laughable. Is it any wonder that the feminist rage, gentlemen, would you like to have someone generalize about you that way, that you are a gossip, you are irrational, you are emotional, you are incapable of, of taking care of serious uh, matters, you are incapable of thinking things through? I've been in meetings, and some of you women can speak to this issue yourselves, I've been in meetings where we've been talking about trivia and all sorts of things. And then someone will bring up a serious subject, uh, theology or politics. And from that point on, they will absolutely ignore my wife and they will talk directly to me. The point being, men can talk about serious subjects, women cannot. It's very interesting. You know, we're going to talk about roles later on. And uh, whether there is such a thing as a biblical role for women, I think Scripture gives us some hints. But it is remarkable, remarkable. How little the Bible says about what women are like and what men are like. The Bible does not say that men are rational and women are, oh, we like to say intuitive, that sounds better than irrational. But the Bible does not say that. 
And what we want to do is try to demolish some of the stereotypical ideas that, that men and women have about one another. Men have about women, and women have bought, and that's why they feel demeaned, and that's why they, they feel oppressed. We want to see what the Bible actually says. The point I want to make is that Genesis 1 sees man and woman as equally created in the image of God, and they are both equally valuable and worthwhile and significant, and it is both ungodly and unmanly to put women down. The bad humor that we use, the jokes that we throw around about our wives, the names that we call them, the old lady and stuff like that, are nothing more than a, than, than a manifestation of what we really think about women. We really think that they are a subspecies. They're second-class citizens. And that's the sort of thing that got Jimmy the Greek fired. Do you realize that? I mean, you weren't talking about women. The issue there was racism, but sexism is the same sort of thing. Men and women are created equal. And we're going to talk a lot about that, and we're going to talk about the way our Lord treated women. You realize that in our Lord's time, women were chattel. They weren't considered worthwhile at all. Our Lord went way out of his way to break every cultural norm, to talk to women. They didn't even talk to women in public in those days. The mission and the Talmud forbade it. Our Lord went out of his way to talk to them, to treat them as his equals, to talk theology to them, to teach them the scriptures. Because he realized that women are not disciplettes, they're not subsets of men. They can think. They can reason. They are people. They are human. And we men have, have got to realize that. I, this is a quote from Dorothy Sayers that I've used before. About 40 years ago, she wrote a, a remarkable essay entitled, Are Women Human? I have it in my office if any of you would like to, like to read the entire uh, article. She, she says, They, that is women... I've never known a man like this man, like Jesus. There's never been such another, a prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there, is, that there was anything funny about woman's nature. That's the way our Lord treated women. He honored them. He respected them. And we men should do likewise. Anything less, I say, is ungodly and unmanly. I just uh, finished looking at a, a book by uh, Lucy and, and Dennis Guernsey in which they describe uh, an event in their life. He was working on his doctorate. He was busy. He was uh, teaching and studying. And, and uh, she, they were driving home from a party one night, and she said to him, uh, I, I think I want to get a job. And he said, no, you can't do that. I, I've got to finish up my doctoral program. And, and she said, all of a sudden, she 
found herself just rolling up in a little ball and rocking back and forth. And she started to weep. And she said, I'm a person. I'm a person. She was so shocked by the depth of her feeling, and, and so was Dennis. But that's what women are saying to us. They may rage. You know, we, there, there, there is a wrong reaction to this sort of oppression, but that's what women are saying to us. I am a person. I'm human. And we men have, have got to understand and accept that fact. Oh, enough on that. That's way too convicting. Let's go on to chapter 2. Uh, commentators are all over the chart, and some of them are off the wall on, on chapter 2. I have to confess, I, uh, some of them see it as conflicting, contradictory accounts. My response to that sort of thing is to say Moses was no fool. He was better educated than most of us, for goodness sake. I mean, he knew if he was putting something in that was contradictory. It is not contradictory. It's complementary. The, the, the point of chapter 1 is that that male and fe- that man is male and female and they are equal. The point of chapter 2 is that God made them male and female and they are complementary. That's the emphasis. There's no contradiction. They fit hand in glove to give us a, the whole picture. Also, what chapter 2 does is, is tell us why people get married, which is an interesting way of, way of looking at, at this chapter. It's a wonderful story. Uh, is simply another account of creation. It begins with verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, when God made the earth. Now here he, the emphasis is on the earth itself. No shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprung up. In other words, the domesticated plants, the plants that man would put in the field, had not yet appeared. There was other plant growth. Genesis 1 tells us, the chronology of Genesis 1 tells us that. Uh, the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. There, there was no man to work the ground, but streams. Uh, they know now that the word actually means floods, inundations. There was no man to irrigate, but the uh, ground was irrigated through uh, annual uh, floods, such as the floods that uh, take place in Egypt in the Nile each year. Uh, floods came up from the earth and watered the whole earth, and the Lord God formed man uh, out of the dust from the ground. Uh, again, to indicate his continuity with the earth, he is made of dust. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, somewhere in the Middle East. And there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, those ornamentals, things that were nice to look at, good for food, things to eat. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he describes the water system, the river system that watered the garden. Four great rivers converged at one point to form a huge river that flowed through the middle of the garden. It would be very significant in the middle of the Middle East where it's so arid and where streams are so rare. Now, you see the point. The whole thing is for man. As John Dunn put it, man is the reason for the earth. The whole earth was created. For man, it put him in this beautiful garden, beautiful things to look at, plenty of water, and he gives him work to do so that he has significance. Work, we should point out, is not the result of the fall. The Lord God took the man and left him in the Garden of Eden to, to work it, to keep it, take care of it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. We could talk a long time about that verse. It simply establishes that the man is responsible, which gives him dignity. And, and then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The thing that's striking about that verse is its context. Seven times, six times, God creates and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And now he says, for the first time, something is not good. God perceived uh, man, you know, one, one of these days, you know, he looked at, saw him walking across the field, dragging his ditching tool. He was going to go out to clear out his ditch. He has his long face. He looked awful. God said, what's the matter? He said, I am so lonely. I am all by myself. God said, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good. We have to do something about that. So he trots out all the animals. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground. This is something that had already taken place. He doesn't form them at this point. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds there, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of, of the field. So he brings all the animals, so all creatures, great and small, by man, and he, and he asked them to name them. There's something very significant about that naming. Jim Houston says, in Semitic thought, naming implied the ability to know the inner secrets or essence of an object, just as a man has powers in science today. Man's power to so name the animals was notably set in the context of his recognition of his own relational needs. In other words, the animals came by and Adam named them all in terms of their relationship to him. And none of them worked. None of them took away his loneliness. There was something wrong with, with every animal in terms of, of assuaging his, his feeling of, of, of being all alone. And also, I want you to notice, and this is important, these were all creatures that he ruled over. He was their sovereign. And none of them, therefore, could be his companion. And, and so we're told that Adam, uh, the Lord God, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. He went into a sort of coma. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, that is the flesh with a tendon, uh, the bone with a tendon flesh, not a rib. The Hebrew doesn't say a rib. He took from his side, something from his side, and closed up the place with, with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, from the side he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And if I can paraphrase, the man said, Whoopee! He uses the strongest expletive that can be used in, in Hebrew. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of, out of man. As one of the early uh, Hebrew rabbis said, she is the only thing worthy of being called by my own name. What he does is give her the feminized form of his own name. Uh, we do that to some extent in, in English. Our word woman is simply the, the feminine form of the male, of, of the masculine uh, man. 
Although, as I understand, uh, woman is actually an old uh, English word that means wolf man. Not W-O-L-F man, but W-O-O-F man. Wolf man. Man who weaves is the idea. But it is still considered to be the feminine form of the masculine form of man. And you find the same thing going on in Hebrew. This is not the precise feminine form, but it is close enough to get the point across. The point is, this is, this is man. Here's male man, and here's female man. And she is not, and you all the way back to some of the early church fathers, Augustine, Anselm, and others, they will say she was not taken out of his head to rule over him. She was not taken out of his feet to be, to be trampled underfoot. She was taken out of his side to be his companion, his buddy, his friend. That's what he needed. And that's what marriage is for. That's why we get married. To have a friend. Now that puts things in a, in a different light, you see. And that's why Moses says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and he shall become one flesh. That's simply a, a long way of saying they got married. That's what marriage is. It's leaving one set of relationships, one primary relationship to your parents and establishing another, and sticking to that relationship. Uh, that's the significance of the word cleave, to glue to, to adhere to, to stay together for life. We live in a society where change and choice is up and commitment is down. And if I read Moses correctly, he's saying, no matter what, you stick to that woman and you stick to that man for the rest of your life. That's your friend. Song of Solomon picks that up so beautifully when, when he says to him, you are my lover and you are my friend. That's what a marriage was intended to be, a friendship. And then Moses, in, in his quaint way, says in verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Nice touch. Really nice. What he's saying is that they enjoyed uninhibited sexual freedom. God, you know, and by the way, it's secondary. Do you notice that? The first thing is partnership. The second thing is sexual enjoyment and satisfaction. The main thing is partnership, friendship. Oneness. I uh, always get a big kick out of Carl Sagan. Uh, he, he, in his book Cosmos, he, he describes these two multicellular organisms that are kind of rattling around out there somewhere in this biological garden of Eden. And all of a sudden they find each other and they merge. And he says with his characteristic omniscience, Two billion years ago, sex happened. I said, oh, come on. Come on, Carl. There's got to be more to it than that. No, sex didn't just evolve, and Hugh Hefner did not think it up. God created sex in marriage. That's the whole point. So, you know, how can you misunderstand it? That's the only place it has any significance. It's the only place it satisfies. It's the only place it has any lasting value. It's the only place it unites rather than disintegrates. It is something wonderful that God created, and it 
And it happens within the confines of a friendship. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united uh, to his wife, and they will become one flesh. I want to say one thing quickly about the word helper, and then I want to draw some conclusions. That word helper throws a lot of people because it sounds like daddy's little helper. The the point is sometimes made that the mandate to rule the earth is given to man, and uh, the woman is his little helper. You cannot read chapter 1 that way. The, The verb is plural. God said to them, that is man and woman, rule over the universe. So that the mandate to subdue the earth is given to both. And he is not given the mandate, and she is not left out and told to simply help him achieve his destiny. They both are given the command to rule. And the word helper does not signify little helper. It's the word in Hebrew, etzer. It forms the basis of Ezra's name. And Ezariah, the king, Ezariah. Etzer Yahweh. God is my help. That verb is used uh, some 20 times in the Old Testament with God as its subject. It, it occurs over 80 times in Semitic literature as a, in terms of military correspondence. When someone would write to some other people and say, Come help us. We're under siege. Help us. They, will, they say, That's the word that's used. It's a very, very powerful word. And the word... Uh, uh, corresponding to, I think it's the way it's translated here, suitable, no suitable help, is the Hebrew word negado, which in uh, rabbinic literature, and Mishnaic literature, that is the writings of the rabbis after the scriptures, it means equal to. No question about it. We've made up a word, helpmate or helpmeet. Actually, you know, we've made a noun out of it. Actually, meets an adjective. It's an old Elizabethan adjective meaning equal to. There's really no such thing as a helpmate or a helpmeet. It is a helper, meet for me, suitable for me, equal to me, corresponding to me. That's that's what God wanted to provide for man. Someone who would come and rescue him from his loneliness. Save him from being alone. That's the point. His buddy, his sidekick, she was taken out of his, his side. So she could be his companion. Now there is nothing demeaning of women in any of these texts that we've read. They, they all exalt women, their worth and their significance. Now I want to draw some conclusions, if I may. I'm skipping over a lot of material, but I'll, I'll pick it up, come back to it as, as uh, we look at some of these other texts. So often women will come into my office and they'll say, I'm really unhappy in our marriage. And my husband doesn't know what's wrong. He's happy as a clam. I mean, you know, his, his needs are met sexually physically and he has food on the table the children are reasonably clean and the house is in order and he's you know he he just loves it he thinks it's great and i am miserable and i know exactly what she's talking about he does not yet understand that marriage is intended to be a partnership a friendship an intimate 
relationship, a shared relationship. Now, what I want to suggest are a couple of ways to achieve companionship or intimacy in marriage, or put it another way, how to become good friends. I have four of them. I don't have time to cover them all. I've only got five minutes, so I'll cover two, and then we'll, we'll talk about the others when we turn to another text next week. Number one, how to achieve intimacy. We need a common goal, a common goal. Now, I'm not talking about serving together in church, serving together in Sunday school, starting a mom-and-pop store. That's not what I have in mind. I'm saying we need a bottom-line objective, and our bottom-line objective is godliness. I can't stress that too strongly. We get out of phase with God, we get out of phase with one another. What I want to say is that, that, that man and woman are both created in the image of God. Women are not disciplettes. They are not subsets of men, as I've said. They, men do not mediate their spiritual life to them. They need to go directly to God through Jesus Christ. If your husband is encouraging you, great. If he is not, then just outgrow him. Don't wait for him to come along. And, and, and vice versa. Man, if, if your wife is dragging her heels, you encourage her, you help her, but you, you don't have to be held back by her. You go on and grow. You become everything that God wants you to be. And I especially want to stress that for women, because women somehow feel they have to wait for their husband to lead them before anything good can be accomplished in their lives. That's not true. It's not true. You know the old joke about the fellow that went out to play golf and he, he was late getting home. His wife said, uh, how come you're late? She said, well, this terrible thing happened. Eighth green and George had a heart attack and died. She said, oh, it's terrible. Said, oh, yeah, it's awful. She hit the ball and dragged George. Hit the ball and dragged George. I thought you'd all heard that. <clears throat> terrible joke. But I heard someone use that joke the other day, and you know how they used it? They said, you know, it was, a, it was a man that was talking. He said, you know what my Christian life is like? Hit the ball and drag Mary. Hit the ball and drag Mary. And I thought, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. But it doesn't have to stop you. You can go on hitting the ball. That's the point. And what I want you to understand is that probably the most important thing that I can tell you in your marriage relationship is that both of you need to be hotly pursuing God. That's going to do more for your marriage than anything else. If you're growing toward God, the tendency is to grow together. You know, the, the pyramids, you've all seen that. You know, man, woman, God, as you grow toward God, grow toward the apex, then you grow closer together. I just want to encourage you in that goal. That's the most important thing of all. You were made for God. And you'll only find your satisfaction when you know God. See, what happens is that that gives you a feeling of security and significance apart from your mate. You don't have to depend on your mate for your feeling of well-being. You get it from God. Because there are no people in this world that, 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 that are going to come through for you. As Carolyn says so frequently, men will always disappoint you. Try Jesus. I don't know why she says that, but I <laughs> says it all the time. But, you know, she's right. She's right. 
Your husband, your wife will always disappoint you. Go to Jesus. That's where you're going to find your strength. That's the first thing I want to say. We need a common goal. The second thing we, we must have, and with this I'm going, to, I'm going to close, is mutual respect and loyalty. We need to respect and honor one another as people. We are both fully human. We're on the same team. I was watching Dallas play the other day. Dorsett fumbled the ball. And as they were standing on, they fumbled it away, actually. And as they, they were, as they were standing on the sidelines, I saw the camera pan the sidelines. Guys, other cowboys were coming up, and they were whacking Dorsett on the back and giving him a hug. And you knew what they were saying. It's all right, Tony. It's all right. It's all right. We'll get it back. You'll get them next time. That's what we mean by mutual respect and loyalty. We're on the same team. We're not competing. We're together in this thing. We're encouraging, helping one another, which means that we don't demean or debase one another. We don't use sarcasm. We don't scold one another. We don't treat one another like children. You know what happens in the average Christian home? Well, let me tell you what happens. Let me give you the scenario. A woman says to her husband, Oh, man, I am tired. These kids are wearing me out. i got to have some time off. Let's get a babysitter next, next Thursday afternoon so I can get away and do some shopping and spend some time by myself. He says, We can't afford it. She says, what do you mean we can't afford it? You just bought a new set of golf clubs. I work hard. I deserve it. Well, what makes your needs more important than mine? I'm the head of the house. I decide what goes on around here. She says, now, wait a minute. That's that's enough of that. I don't want to hear any more of that. Now, let me tell you, that goes on more frequently than you know. It may not be happening in your house, but I know homes where it's going on. That is demeaning, it is debasing, that is treating another human being the way no one ought to treat another human being. Would you, gentlemen, want your, your employer at work to treat you that way? You would be outraged. Is it any wonder that the feminists rage? Is it any wonder that women walk out? I know one woman that muffed up her checkbook. She, you know, she had a hard time keeping her checkbook. You know what her husband did? He took her off the signature card. He took her off all the credit cards. He gave her an allowance. She had to come and beg for money. And then when she said, I, I need more money, I'm going to get a job. He said, you can't get a job. I'm the head of this. And this is actually what he said. I'm the head of this house. And if you go out and get a job, God will judge you. The woman lived in fear that she would, that God would strike her down when she got in the car to go to the, to the grocery store from that point on. That is demeaning another human being. Is it any wonder that women walk out? Is it any wonder? I had one woman tell me, I have gone through this for 20 years. I have been called every name in the book. I've had it. I'm through. And you know who gets blamed? She does. She broke up the marriage. And Christians are scandalized because she walked out. Now, I don't believe in divorce, and I don't counsel people to get divorces. Divorce is, is sin, except under certain conditions, and we'll talk about that later on. I don't condone it, but I understand 
Why a woman will take 20 years of verbal abuse and then say, I am through. I'm out of here. I understand. Because no one ought to treat another human being that way. I just want to say again that we are made in the image of God, male and female. You men are truly human, and so are you women. And it is not right to debase or to demean or to oppress the opposite sex. That is sexism, and it's ungodly, and it is unmanly, and it's at the root of a lot of the problems that we're seeing in in marriages. And that's why I'm stressing it so much. It breaks my heart, and it ought to break ours, all of us. We've got to do something about it. The other thing I would say is that we've got to learn to see our marriages as partnerships. This is not, this mate is not the person that God gave me merely to wash my socks and, and clean my house and take care of my children. This is my buddy. This is my friend. I have no closer friend. No one that I'm on more intimate terms with than Carolyn. That's the way we need to look at our homes. And I pray by God's grace over the weeks ahead as we talk about these tough, difficult themes that will search our hearts and we will do something about what the evil one is doing in our homes. He's behind it all. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's pray. Dear God, forgive us for the, the unmanly unwomanly, ungodly things that we've been doing in our homes, the way we treat one another, the way we talk to one another, the harsh, uh, unloving, ungracious things that we say. Forgive us for our competition. Forgive us for the way we devaluate one another. Help us to see one another as joint heirs of eternal life. Help us to be filled and flooded with, with you. Help us to rely upon that indwelling life, that ongoing presence that makes it possible for us to grow and, and to come to grips with the problems in our home. Make us like the Israelites, characterized by light in our homes. Help us to be to our community around us a living visual aid of the relationship between Christ and His church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.